Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 5, The Investigation. Throughout today's episode, you will be hearing from Bob Johnson, who was a reporter on these cases for the Iola Register from the beginning. On the morning, September 30th, 1969, of Betty Kentrell's investigation, an Iola police officer named Richard Drury arrived at the cafe around 5 to 5.15 in the morning after Miss Ekstrom called the station to report what her son Philip Ekstrom had found within the walls of the dine-out cafe. Betty was missing, and so was her car. The money in the register was gone. A large bloody handprint was discovered on one of the counters, bloody tissues on the floor, empty coffee cups on the side table where Betty would sit when it wasn't busy. One of the coffee cups would have lipstick on it, and the other one would not. It is known that the officer encouraged Miss Ekstrom to get the cafe cleaned up and reopened as people began to arrive for breakfast. Unfortunately, the officer did not take any fingerprints, which would have been common practice by 1969. Miss Ekstrom was instructed to go ahead and clean up and that she could reopen. That will lead to all the evidence being washed up and thrown away. Would fingerprinting the cafe helped is the question that we keep asking ourselves along with the residents of Iola. Even if it couldn't, why wasn't it completed as if it was standard practice? The cafe was a building that was open to the entire community. If a person's fingerprints were found inside the cafe, that would be easily... If a person's fingerprints were found inside that cafe, they could easily say they simply enjoyed coffee at that location. But police believed that the cafe was robbed. So why was the cash register not fingerprinted? It would be difficult to explain fingerprints on the register if you were just a customer. That first day, when Betty was just thought to be missing, it would be Iola's chief of police, Everett Shepard, that was in charge of the investigation. There would not be any joint investigation that day. Once the car was found, it was reported that police recovered two traces of blood in her car, yet it did not appear that there was a struggle that took place inside the car. During the time of the investigation, police never announced that they had fingerprinted the inside of the car. Over the years, people close to the case have said that the Iola Police Department never took fingerprints inside the car. If this is the case, why? So this is kind of an interesting thing that goes on in this investigation. I certainly have understood why the cafe wasn't fingerprinted. I mean, that that would be a huge task to undertake, to try to take all of those fingerprints, figure out um, who they belonged to, who they didn't belong to, if they were um, in the cafe for having a cup of coffee or, you know, enjoying the French toast. But the coffee cups, two coffee cups, one coffee cup with lipstick, one coffee cup without, that has always made me think that she's sitting there having a cup of coffee with somebody in kind of a friendly manner. They're having a discussion. This is somebody that she knows not somebody who's come in to rob the cafe and kidnap her, you know, and then the cops themselves, obviously the one cup should be Betty's cup. 
cup. And But why wouldn't you take both of those? I know. It is kind of weird that, you know, since the fingerprints or fingerprinting would have been common practice, right, that you wouldn't look at that and be like, somebody was here with her? Who could that possibly be? Well, and the interesting thing about this is, you know, as these stories come forward and different things and people have talked about things that happened, one thing that hasn't come out is nobody ever came forward to say, oh, I was in the cafe at 3 a.m. and I sat and had a cup of coffee with my friend Betty. Right. Because she's not going to have a cup of coffee at like 2 or 3 a.m. with you know, they talk about the cafe being open for kind of this truck driving traffic. That'd be more like they would come in, she'd wash up their dishes and then sit back down. This is two coffee cups at her table Mm -hmm. where she was known to sit and listen to her radio. And, you know, and when did fingerprints become common practice? Well, okay, so we do know that fingerprint evidence were was um, first used in prosecuting a case in 1911. So from that day to present day even, it's a standard investigation tool. And it would be one that they would be able to solve cases effectively with. And I do know that, like, fingerprinting, you know, you're not always going to get fingerprints off of everything. I mean, I think they say in... Um, when they fingerprint items in like 90% of the items that they fingerprint, they don't get any evidence off. They don't get any fingerprints off of it. But things like a coffee cup that would have been clean prior to that, Mm -hmm. you know, that surface itself would have some great areas that should pick up in fingerprints. And think about this. If you're sitting in a cafe having a cup of coffee with her, you're probably not wearing gloves. Oh, I'm sure not. I mean, because that would let her know that something's weird, you know, and then the cash register that might have been more of a difficulty to fingerprint it. You know, you'd have maybe some more latent fingerprints and not as easily done a lot more fingerprints on that. That's not going to be something that's cleaned on a daily basis. But again, somebody whose fingerprint was on the cash register that's not easily explained unless you're working there or you took the money out of the register or you took the Uh money out of the register now there's always the possibility that whoever kidnapped her forced her to take the money out of the register but you don't we don't know that because it's cleaned up (laughs) do you think it's possible that they didn't have like fingerprint kits i mean you would think that they did the police station's right there. If he oh, didn't, true. he yeah. could have just gone to get it. It's it's literally right there. That's true. So, I mean, it's just bad. <laughs> you know, even if you didn't, and then you didn't take the time to go get one. And then one other thing that has come up as we've been doing diving deeper into this very beginning timeline is that... In the beginning, they talked about this timeline being from 4.45 to like 5 o'clock that she disappeared because Philip manages to arrive at 5 a.m. But what we're finding is that in years later, his statement actually is that he would arrive at 6 a.m. Yeah, which opens up an entire extra hour 
that she could have been kidnapped. Right. You know, they, so. Yeah. So the, the, so you have Baba Lane arriving around 5 a.m., but he's saying that her car was still there. He goes to the police station and the police don't respond until they get that call um, that Philip has arrived at the cafe and there's blood at the cafe. So if that is not around that 5 a.m. time period like we originally thought and that was originally reported, if that's actually around that 6 a.m. to possibly 6.15 a.m. time period, that gives somebody a lot more time with Betty to not be discovered. Sure. And it would also, you know, it gives a lot more time for the car to be ditched in that location that it was and to return back home. To wherever home is. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, or to, it gives you more time to get away, basically. And it answers that question that we had in the very beginning, which is if people on Walnut heard screaming and Phillips actually on Walnut. How didn't the car and her screaming, how didn't they cross paths? Mm-hmm. But if he's an hour later going to the cafe, which is what is in his sworn testimony, no wonder they didn't cross paths. So there's a very good possibility that he wasn't even awake. And then the fingerprinting, not fingerprinting the car, understand either. I don't understand that either because they, Betty's obviously in the car and so is another person. Why are you not fingerprinting at the very least the door handles? Right. The steering wheel. You know, yeah, because like you, you made a mistake in the cafe, but then you just continue, you know, later on to do the same thing. It's just bad. Well, And, I mean, there is a possibility, because they're not releasing that file, that they did fingerprint the car and just never came up with anything. But they never come out and say that they have fingerprints of a suspect. When they do have a suspect, his fingerprints fingerprints are not something that they use to say, well, we have these fingerprints or we have latent fingerprints or we were unable to fingerprint the car because he was possibly wearing gloves. You know, and I've always assumed that whoever kidnapped her was probably the person who was driving. Now, we don't know that. I don't know that you will ever really know that at this point. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, it was it was a warmer day in Kansas. So you're not bundling up wearing gloves. Well, and it goes back to the cup. Yeah. Coffee is hot. So your hand is more likely to have fingerprints on a coffee cup. Coffee wrote all night and she came in. She did the early shift. 30 a police officer drove by and saw her in there, so he knew she was alive then. Well, an hour or so later, the first coffee drinker showed up. No one was there, and there blood on the counter. You have to forgive me, but this has been 50, 60 years ago. I don't remember ever detail. Whoever it was, or the next person, they called the police. And within an hour or two, one of the, uh, apparently, uh, ever Shepard was chief of police then, John Walters was the, uh, assistant chief and for some reason maybe Everett didn't come on until eight o'clock or something and Walters was on during the night but he went over and looked things over and 
Betty Ekstrom that owns a restaurant to dine out. He told her, I said, why don't you get this place cleaned up so you can start serving people? So they cleaned it up. But, you know, in today's environment, they would have sealed the building. They would have, you know, the blood was probably all cantrels, but there could have been fingerprints. Of course, if, if he did it in there, there was fingerprints someplace. But they cleaned it up and went to serving eggs and bacon and toast and coffee. attended the junior high school football game on October 2nd. Her body was found on Friday, October the 3rd, around 12.30, and Betty's body would be found later that day, around 5.30. At the time, the investigation, the two cases were being handled by three different agencies, the Allen County Sheriff's Office, the Iola Police Department, and the, or the Kansas Bureau of Investigations. See, as you turn and go east, I used to do a lot of trapping out there on my drears and I know that country real well. And as you turn east, you go, oh gosh, probably not much further than the road. And there's a culvert and a slough that runs down through there. And she was down in the, either in the slough or right up the edge of it. And uh, if you just drove down the road, the body wasn't easily visible. Now, if you were over to the road and looked down, you would have seen it. But, you know, most people just drive along and not paying any attention. October, I don't remember whether the road, the road was dry enough to dry on. And it may have been completely dry, I don't know. But as I remember, I kind of can picture her laying there. And I think she was laying with her head pointing kind of north or northeast. They talked about her being, thought she was probably hit with a... Uh, a log branch or a piece that goes into a jack to raise it. That's what, and that was just supposition. They never found the weapon. She was bludgeoned in the face and head, they said. It was on Saturday, the 4th of October, that a team of the KBI investigators came to Iola and set up the offices in the Sheriff's Department to assist both agencies in the investigations. The Sheriff at the time was Ross Wade. This was the day after both bodies had been found and identified. Although the KBI had been involved before this through resident KBI agent Ray Emmons, this move would make them officially part of the investigation into both cases. Two more agents joined Ray, Jim Mawson from Olathe and Wendell Cohen from Topeka. The KBI announced that Betty Cantrell was killed by being beaten in the head with a rock and that the motive in the Cantrell case was robbery, as there was about $25 missing from the cash register in the cafe. Due to that, it is not connected to the Sally Hutton case, as the motive in that case was unknown. Sally was buried on Monday, October the 6th. The funeral was held at the Wall Yoakum Funeral Home in Iola. Reverend Earl Bell officiated the service. The services were attended by Sally's large family and many members of the community. Sally's sister Carolyn and her Aunt Pat had to make the very difficult decision to have a closed casket funeral. There were 
many family members who were not in agreement with this, wanting to say their goodbyes to Sally. Sadly, the damage to Sally's face was so extensive that the only option that Carolyn and Pat felt was right was to have a closed casket. What is very difficult about this, hearing about the extensive damage from her, and and Betty's case is incredibly tragic, but when you talk about it with Sally, it always to me, I keep coming back to the fact that this is a 14-year-old child. I think sometimes when we're talking about these two cases, we tend to talk about Sally and Betty, both as, as women. But I think, you know, now is a good time to reflect on the fact that Sally really was a child. 53 years later, there's still no answers in her case. It's very sad to me, especially with you know, like Carolyn just advocates and keeps looking for those answers for her sister. She was a child. She was very young. And to go through something so horrific, it's it's heartbreaking. It truly is heartbreaking. And it makes me angry because it's almost like, even though they want to say that it's an open investigation, I feel like they don't do anything with it. They don't make any movement on it. Yeah, my heart breaks because she is a child, mm -hmm. you know, and I still think that there are answers out there that that can happen in this case. If not, we wouldn't do this. Right. And I feel the same way. You know, again, you know, we talk about the Jack and we talk about different things, you know, and it does seem like there's some possibilities that they could get some answers here, you know, and it just infuriates me because the way that they not only handle Betty's case, say with the no fingerprinting and stuff, it's bad police, it's bad investigating, I guess. I'm not going to say policing, bad investigating. And you wonder if her case was handled exactly the same way. It's the same people investigating hers as well. And she's a child. The next day, Tuesday, October 7th, two more KBI agents joined the investigation looking into Betty and Sally's cases. Jess Gregg of Wichita and Ron Kingingberg of Neodosha. Ron was not unfamiliar with Iola, having served in the Iola as part of the state patrol. The KBI also had laboratory agents working in Iola and gathering evidence. One of the agents was there the day that Sally's body was found. He went to the location and gathered evidence at the scene. All three agents returned to the locations where each of the remains had been found to gather more evidence. The KBI investigating the case believed that there was no chance that the brutal murder, murder of Sally Hutton occurred where her body was found. The agents asked for the public's help for information on where Sally was murdered. It is during this time that all the males and immediate family of Sally's were brought in for interviews. Sally's father, as well as several of her uncles, were interviewed by investigators. The KBI did say that none of the people interviewed were suspects. The agents simply believed that they may have had information that could have been helpful. On Wednesday, October the 8th, five days after the discovery of Sally's body, police got a tip that there was blood, hair, and even a tooth on old US-54 detour a mile from where the body was found. The KBI and Sheriff's Department headed out there, but to no avail, they were only discovered that they were animal remains. KBI agents stated that there were a lot of names that have popped up in the investigation, so many that it is a little hard to keep them straight. 
Also that day, the National Guard was searching the area where Betty's car was found for evidence. There was nothing new gained from the search. So at this point, evidence from both crime scenes was sent to the KVI laboratories in Topeka and an independent lab in Wichita. So when we're looking at the fact that you have these two separate labs, one in Wichita and one in Topeka, one can surmise that the independent lab in Wichita oversaw the evidence collected during the autopsy of both women. On October 13th, the final results from Betty's autopsy were released. This would be the last time the investigation was on the front page of the newspaper for a while. It was reported that Betty was cause of death was from drowning. On the 21st of October, the KBI reported to the Iola newspaper that they were close to a solution in Betty's case, but had no leads in Sally's investigation. So again, this goes back to the robbery. The KBI and the um, Iola police are focused on this crime being a robbery. So $25, roughly $25 was stolen out of the register. Um, when you look at $25 stolen out of the register in today, that would be roughly about $200 stolen out of the register. I mean, they really do take on the eyes of this is a robbery gone wrong. And I don't think that we can discount that. Right. Way. But at the same time, I'm just you know, 81 murders in Kansas in 1969, and these are two of them. So now you're down to 79 murders in 1969. When you look at those murders, robbery being the um, cause was a tiny, tiny proportion of that. And then when you look at $25 being the robbed amount that led to not only a kidnapping, but a murder in a very odd way. You don't have any other cases like that mm -hmm. that happen. I mean, I get, I get we're only kind of talking about Kansas, but this is, this situation is, is almost a little bit, it's it's unique because if you were worried about Betty identifying you, then why are you taking her with you? You know, why risk the chance that she could get away? Unless the perpetrator didn't think that she would flee from them. Okay. I mean. Right. And I mean, that would be somebody that she knew. Or he just felt like he had enough control of her. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but then I just, you... So the idea here is that you don't want to get caught, right? Right. Okay, but taking her with you ups the chances of you getting caught by a huge amount. Taking her with you in her own vehicle, you know, that's a lot. And then taking her to a place that's not incredibly secluded. I mean, where where Sally was ultimately found, that location is pretty secluded. I mean, we do know that there are a few houses in that location. But where Betty is ultimately placed into the creek, 
there's a lot of houses there. If that person lived down in that location, maybe that was the easiest solution. You know, drive down toward where you live so that you can quickly get away and get back to your house. Maybe. But this, it's just, it's unique. If yeah, this is a robbery. If you think it's a robbery gone wrong, that is, is you know, a crime of opportunity. Right? Driving, kidnapping her, and then driving her down to the creek, it's opportunistic at that time you know i mean it becomes more personal i think you know or they knew they know that spot they had the intentions of taking her down there or they were driving okay. around and then they just dump her right here i don't know when you look at the 1960s and iola they only had i think it was four violent crimes yeah it's not like they're saying oh it's another robbery yeah, the town's not like, oh, it's just another robbery. Another robbery and a murder. Yeah. You know, which which goes back to, you know, the investigation and them handling the investigation in the way that they did, you know, where we look at their those mistakes, which it is easy for us to kind of sit back and look at at mistakes that are being made. But that is the interesting part of this. They're not dealing with crime on this scale. I mean, they're probably dealing with somebody stealing a bike. Um, they may be dealing with, with people breaking into homes, um, stealing from the liquor store and some shoplifting, but they, but they're not dealing with this type of thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so you can look at the possibility that there were some mistakes made because they didn't know what they were dealing with, but to be so firm early on, on that this was a robbery and that that's really the only explanation for this. I don't know. It's just. It now, here's, a, here's another thing that a couple of the officers told me that I, I never wrote about was that uh, they found it peculiar that David Cantwell didn't seem to be very upset. You know, if my wife had been killed, I'd been frantic. Now, whether that, well, that's true, or, you know, sometimes even officers magnify things. I don't know that he was, you know, usually the husband is the first suspect in the murder of a wife. But uh, I don't know whether he was ever considered a suspect. And maybe, it, maybe he's just a stoic guy. I don't November 6, 1969, Sally's body was exhumed and was taken to Wichita for another examination by pathologists. The KBI felt that additional information could be learned from a second autopsy. This is the point where everybody starts to hear that there's some information about Sally having a burger and fries about an hour before she died. According to Carolyn, who is Sally's sister, Sonic would have been open that night. And there was also Forest Scenes, which is located at 15th North Jefferson, that would have been open also till 10 o'clock. They offered low price burgers. If she went for a burger at either place, this would put her near the location where Betty was abducted. This is very confusing because we've done interviews with several different people, um, including uh, Bob from the Iola Register 
and Carolyn who talk about the information about the burger and fries comes out because they did a second autopsy. But we've done a bit of research on this. And I think that the information about the burger and fries had to come out from the first autopsy. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that we're kind of um, touching base on this because when we were talking, you know, I assumed that it also came from the um, second autopsy, right, that was done. And when we, we looked up stuff to do some research, the food by the time a second autopsy was done would not have been in, in her stomach. So that had to happen right the first time. Yeah. So I'm thinking that basically what happens here is that the the announcements kind of happen all together. And so that's why like her body is exhumed. She's taken for another um, autopsy. And then the pathologist report is coming out about the burger and fries. And so then the KBI is starting to ask questions about where would she have gone to eat? Could there have been a snack um, place that she would have eaten at the game? And also talking to the family about would she have had money to afford a hamburger and fries, which Carolyn has informed us that Sally did not have money in order to purchase herself a hamburger and fries. And the hamburger and fries, because of how much of it was digested, the pathologist is saying that's about an hour to an hour and a half before her death. So that would put her having a hamburger and fries around 8.39 p.m. But yeah, the problem with this is once she is autopsied the first time and then goes through the uh, process to be buried and they embalm her, she wouldn't have anything left in her stomach contents. So I think that they were probably removed at the time of the first autopsy. And it just took a while for that information to be acted upon. I don't know how long before the second autopsy that the KBI had that information. Um, again, because we're not looking at the reports, but it seems like by the time of the second autopsy is when they start acting upon that um, and saying, had they known that earlier, they may have been able to track down people who either worked at the Sonic, who might have seen her there, worked at Floristines. I think we've heard that there was uh, A&W and um, another place that might have had burgers and fries. But um, nobody ever came forward and saw, said that they saw her that night. And it has come out that it's possible that the pathologist report went into enough detail to say that this was a burger and fries from Sonic. I mean, you know, also, we, we talked about it, too, because if somebody did see Sally there with somebody, it wouldn't have been something that stuck out in their heads because nobody says that they saw her. It's that we know of, right? right. It's not like they're like, oh, yeah, I saw Sally here last night with so-and-so. Right. Which I think that pretty much uh, rules out any place where you would have gone in and sat down. Now, it does give you the possibility that somebody came in, got to-go food, and went back out to the car with that to-go food. And then they took the to-go food somewhere else and ate. I see how the most likely places are probably a place with a drive-up. Because when you're looking in the car at a drive-up, a lot of times you're looking at the driver. You're not necessarily leaning over and seeing who the passenger is. But I do think by November, if somebody had seen her at, say, any place, 
I think they would remember because she was in the newspaper. You know, I don't think that it had been too long for somebody who had seen her to forget about seeing her because we know people are coming forward today and saying, I know that my neighbor has told me over the years that she saw Sally at the game. We haven't necessarily talked to the neighbor, but we've talked to people who say you should talk to so-and-so because they said over the years that they saw Sally at the game or they said, you know, they knew something. People remember because it is such a big event. So um, next in the investigation, an arrest would be made by local police who received a disturbance call on October the 14th at about 3 p.m. A Miss Rita Sanders was at her home on 628 South Kentucky, where she also operated a beauty shop out of her home, when a man, later identified as 55-year-old Joseph Shoemaker, came to her home and asked to use her phone. The man was clearly drunk and Rita did not allow him to enter her house. Shoemaker left and Rita called the police. He was picked up about five blocks away. When approached by Officer Mayer, Shoemaker kept insisting on being taken to Dr. Eugene Myers, saying he wanted to talk to him about something, but the officer took him to the jail on a drunk hold. Joseph Shoemaker, known in town as Jack, was not unknown to law enforcement. He had a lengthy record, including an arrest in California with priors in 1947. In Iola, in 1967, he received a 30-day jail sentence for public intoxication. The officer said that it was remarks that he made during the arrest that caused them to look at him as a suspect in the Betty Cantrell case. It was not until Friday, January the 23rd, 1970, that a warrant for his arrest was issued. At his arraignment, two lawyers were appointed to represent him as it was found he did not have a means to pay for a lawyer. The lawyers' names were Robert Talkington and J.D. Conderman. Bail was denied. Shoesmaker was a, well, he was a town drunk. Had a great, he'd have made a great character actor in Hollywood. He had real chiseled features and, you know, leathery skin. He was a stereotypical uh, drunk. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you.
please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.